Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and this is a show about writing for writers and for anyone who reads, who loves stories, or is interested in knowing how the narrative sausage is made. I speak to lots of authors, I talk about my own writing, because I am, yes, an author myself, and sometimes I look at your writing your first pages or answer your questions and look at ways of making it better and that is the basic goal of this show that is our quest is to help you write more better and happier those three things producing more quantity of work producing higher quality of work and being happier while you do it that is our goal and in service of that quest um, on today's show uh, i'm chatting to a uh, neuroscientist and uh, expert in uh, magnetic resonance imaging, uh, Martin Lutzer from the University of Griesewald in Germany. I, I reached out to him after, I say reached out to him, I don't know why I use that term, I emailed him after reading about some of his research into the brains of writers. And actually, as he'll explain in this interview, he's done much more research than that. He hasn't just limited himself to creative writing. He's also looked at, uh, art. he's done some studies early on with artistic savants, uh, uh, autistic savants, I should say. Um, people who have, you know, extremely uh, amazing sort of visual memory, for example. Uh, musical savants, things like that. But then he then moved into doing some studies where he took fmri machines and put writers and non-writers in them and got them to actually write some fiction while in the machine and studied what was going on with their brain activity and looking to see if there was any difference between people who'd never really written before and people who wrote on the reg i wanted to chat to him about this because it's important to me like i invoke neuroscience a lot on this show and increasingly in my conversation with people to lend a sort of spurious weight and credibility to whatever assertion I happen to be making that day and I understand and know that adding the prefix neuro to stuff can often is kind of like a way an in vogue way at the moment of making it sound buzzy and making it sound sciencey, and um, it's not always, you know, it's not always done by actual neuroscientists who would be able to tell Broca's area from, I don't know, I can't think of another one, Wernicke's area. There's my two areas that I know in the brain. I don't know roughly where they are, and that's only because James W. Pennebaker told me during an episode where I interviewed him. Like So I can chuck around enough terms that can make someone who doesn't have any interest in it whatsoever sort of maybe believe I half know what I'm talking about. But it's really important to me that when I talk about these things, and I am interested in them, and they are only part of the puzzle, but they're a part of the puzzle that notably I think the arts leaves out. That we talk, writers talk about how they write and why they write and the process they go through and have opinions on whether you can teach creative writing or not, blur, blur, blur. And I'm not saying that write, authors don't have a right to talk about those things, but it's striking to me how 
rarely we actually reach across the floor to our colleagues in the sciences and say, uh, you, you know, you've been like studying the brain for like three decades. Do you any insights you want to add? We just don't. It's like there's a, a marked suspicion suspicion of the of the sciences and what it can say on the human experience. There's this crazy sort of protectionist ludditeism that goes around in, especially in writers, where we go. I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk to those scientists because you can't catch, you can't catch the infinite glory of humanity and beingness within the finite net of data and I just think no one's claiming you can but don't you think it would be polite to ask them for their insights and and so far on the show I've spoken to a range of different scientists and I feel like their insights that they've given and based on what you folks have been emailing me about has been really really useful and some stuff that you've genuinely never heard before so I reached out to yeah Martin Lotzer of the University of Griefswald to talk about his research studying the brains of writers because I think that there are some interesting tentative implications and also because I just wanted to have he's not you know he's not like a big media guy he doesn't do lots of interviews I reached out to him and got him to come on the show um he's really really nice it was really lovely to speak to him uh but he you know he's do it he's talking about he's just an expert who goes away and does this uh you know he's done and does his research and is interested in it but hasn't really spoken to many writers before about it and so you know you'll hear him in this interview uh sort of resist a couple of suggestions where i'm going well do you think this means this can we then completely go look, look, wait 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 here's here's what the data here's the data and you know we want to look into this and da, da, da. but he's actually very careful not to extrapolate too far beyond uh what the data actually shows or suggests now i make some i think there's some really interesting sort of like speculations and hypotheses we can sort of infer from all this but i wanted you to hear him right so it's not just me sort of like packaging uh hearing what i want to hear sort of like taking scientific papers and then just mangling them through my own brain and spitting it out to make me sound like I know what I'm talking about, but not actually letting you hear it from the horse's mouth. I want on this podcast, you know, if I ever speak to scientists, if I ever talk about science, especially neuroscience, I don't want this to be sciencey. I don't want it to be like bro sciencey, where I go, oh, they just did a study where blah blah blah, and I sort of summarise the findings in a way that's not actually reflective of what the paper says at all. And I, because I'm, you know, I know my way around a related and unrelated t test, but I'm not really qualified or even someone who's got enough time to like properly scrutinize and critique the methodology of different tests and that's what's really great about this he talks about his own work and he talks about some issues one might make have with the methodology of them doing this kind of like brain studies and how and the limitations and how sometimes you can just do behavioral studies that's fine you don't always need to look into someone's brain and and how the technology is still in its infancy um all of these things i think is really important for while it may you know 
well, it may not be as punchy and exciting as me just making these kind of like lightning bolt claims about what we know about the human brain now and these fascinating sort of Malcolm Gladwell-esque like counterintuitive kind of summations of what works and what doesn't. The bottom line is none of that would be true and I would just be getting your attention with a bunch of baloney. So I think what's, you know, what I wanted to do is have an episode where you can hear an actual experienced, uh, very, you know, very experienced researcher talk personally about their work. Um, I think that the that the conclusions that we can draw from this tentatively, not completely, but tentatively, are really fascinating because I, re- I, you know, he, 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 you know, he, I'll let you get to the episode in a sec because I want you because you'll enjoy it. But I just want to say there's a couple of things that actually just might need a tiny little gloss. One, he talks about the brain's default mode network and the and the other version of that is the focused mode network. I just want to explain that very quickly. Your default mode network is your brain's kind of like wandering mind standard kind of like when you've automatized processes and you're you're not really concentrating on any one thing and you're just like lost in your thoughts. That's the default mode network. Uh, it, it's sort of like shorthand for a bunch of different processes. And um, at the moment, the current research is that the more time you spend in the default mode network, in the wandering mind, um, most likely the un- the less happy you are. The indicators of happiness, of well-being, you know, self-esteem, optimism, all of those things um, are, are, are likely to be lower if you're in the default mode network. Um Focus mode network is when you are, you know, what's been called like the flow state. But when you're focused on something, when you're focused on the external, it tends to be more exterior, less lost in your thoughts, looking at the world around you, um, you know, or focusing in, in terms of like gratitude or something like that. So we mentioned that briefly. I just wanted to explain those terms. The other thing is, I think you can listen to this talk and, and um, make your own conclusions. Or, or not make any draw any conclusions at all and just listen to Martin. But it seems to me that one of the things they found in this study is that writing, creative writing, is something that is learned, is something that can be trained within the brain, and is something that changes the function and connections and volume of grey matter in different parts of the brain. Now, to me, that's pretty fundamental, right? Because to me, that says, the more you do this, the better you'll get at it. Now, for some of you, that's going to be like, well, Tim, did you really, Did they really need to stick some a bunch of people inside a giant brain scanner to figure that out? Well, if you had been within the creative writing discourse that I had, if you'd been to acad if you'd been to academia, if you'd been around all these different courses, if you'd talked to the editors and agents I had, if you'd been on the, you know, at the book events I had and heard the number of people saying creative writing cannot be taught. Creative writing is something innate, it's something you're born with. Um then you would not be so fucking blasé imaginary friend um because it seems to me that one of the you know one of the things we can draw from this research is that writing 
changes you on a physical level which speaks to the stuff that I talked to James W. Pennebaker about with like writing making you heal better increasing your white blood cell you know your ability to resist disease uh increasing your physical well-being talks about the stuff with you know Paul J. Zach talking about um release of cortisol and oxytocin when you're engaging with fictional texts that grip you and then make you feel empathy which then makes you act differently in real life which then increases your sense of community and your willingness to give to charity when we're you know talking about um with Dr. Tim Pitchell about how uh, the brains of procrastinators and non-procrastinators are different and over eight weeks of uh, meditation we were looking at this kind of like new realm of neurogenesis and neuroplasticity and seeing that the amygdala volume shrinks with eight weeks of uh, vipassana insight meditation I just feel like we are seeing that we actually have got an incredible incredible capacity to change and condition and reshape this organ through which we perceive and process the world and to me that feels pretty profound and pretty fundamental and it's also a little bit of hope for if you find writing difficult you might need to condition your brain a little bit you might need to get match fit that is a thing and you know you'll we'll, we'll, we'll get to martin because he can talk a little bit about sort of the downstreaming with the uh where you know what parts of the brain then start to be responsible for writing and it's not kind of the bits that you would think is actually quite counterintuitive and uh how some of those processes are, uh, are automated uh with the basal ganglia i think this idea that you can you know just doing like like i've been sort of like evangelizing for on the show 10 minutes a day doing your creative writing every time you do that and then you have a sleep where the brain just kind of like checks to you know washes out uh, a bunch of experiences and reinforces the pathways that have been entrained during the day little and often you can shift the brain you've got now into one that is optimised for creative writing. And to me, that is so full of hope and so exciting. So, look, I have, I've I've gone on and on and on, and I want to let you listen to Martin now. Just to remind you before I do that, I've got a book coming out on May the 2nd called The Ice House. It's fucking sweet. It's such a good book. I worked so hard on it. It's going to be chill. I've seen the uh, final design for the cover for the first edition of Harbacks that are coming out. Uh, there's, you know, a little bit of extra bits on the design that they've never told me about and I've seen now and... It's costing them quite a lot of money to make the book look this sexy. And so I really need people to pre-order it and buy it because um, otherwise uh, my publishers will go broke and I will be a pariah throughout the publishing industry. But if you would like to support me in this podcast, if what I do here is something that makes you feel like it is good in the world, um, this is a tiny podcast. Don't have any sponsors. You are the only way I can keep doing this. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes of this this um, for you to pre-order the book. Pre-orders all count towards the book's first week of sales. They also let uh 
bookshops and my publisher and online re retailers know that there's demand for the book. When there's more demand, they're more likely to include it in promotions. They're more likely to um, to to review it. They're more likely to um, uh, raise the prominence of it. It means that I'm more likely to get uh, newspaper reviews. It means just basically everything good happens when you pre-order a book. Um, I'll put links there. What I am going to say is if you pre-order through um, Mr. B's Emporium, who are an indie bookshop, then I will sign all those copies. If they get 100 pre-orders, I think they're on like 55 pre-orders at the moment, then um, I will uh, write some new material to put in each of those books so everyone will get some more. Um, I want to say thank you to everyone who has been pre-ordering thank you lammy who's just said that uh, they pre-ordered through uh, their local bookshop i really really appreciate that and thanks for supporting a bricks and mortar bookshop i'm looking to do as many things as i can to to give goodies to people who are kind enough and awesome enough to pre-order this if you've got suggestions of extra stuff i can do then let me know but like if you at the moment the most pre-orders that a single person has, has done is four um that was from colin i really appreciate that if anyone wants to be that with five that's awesome if any group um if any of you pre-order 10 then i'm happy to do like a half hour uh author q a with you over skype or um if you've got like a writing group and you pre-order 10 or more then i'm really happy to skype in for half an hour and do you like a writing workshop i'd love to do that um anything that we can do to get this book because if I get 1,500 pre-orders and I reckon at the moment we're probably only on about a hundred but if by May the 2nd we can get 1,500 pre-orders then uh, the Ice House will enter the UK bestseller charts and that would be a mental so I'm asking you, begging you, encouraging you to um, use your enlightened self-interest and do that. I'm looking at ways, by the way, that I can sort of um, sign some more of the pre-orders and just looking at ways that I can add stuff in. Um, if I, you know, hit a certain number of pre-orders, then I'm going to commission some art that everyone who gets the book will hopefully uh, get with it. Um, I want to make this as good as I possibly can for you and to thank you for your support. And if you've already pre-ordered it, please, please, please um, share the pre-order link, um, share images of the cover, uh, share uh, the blurb. Um, I'll put out some little mini extracts soon so people can share those as well. Just talk about it, get people talking about it, share. And if you've got any suggestions, if you've got any ideas for um, promoting it, no matter how crazy, drop me a line via my website, timclairpoet.co.uk. Click the little contact me link. I would love, love, love to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you for all of you who've pre-ordered so far. It, you're amazing and I love you dearly. Here's me chatting to uh, neuroscientist Martin Lutzer. And I'm recording uh, myself here, so I'll, I'll just uh, begin. So, um, Martin, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, can you, before we go uh, any any further, I was just wondering if you could... Um, if you could just tell us how you got... in. What's your, what's your official... Uh, job title by the way and uh, I just want to make sure I'm getting it right because I often so get confused with different things what's your official job title oh I'm uh, working in neuroscience as a neurologist since a couple of decades now 
and uh, I'm a professor for functional imaging. So uh, currently in uh, University of Greifswald, which is funded actually by the Swedish kingdom in 550 years ago. So it's the oldest Swedish university, but it's all now Germany. Okay. Um, can you... How did you, what, what, why did, I just wanted so people know a bit about you before we kind of jump into obviously the area I'm really interested in as an author, as a writer, someone who's given his life to writing. I'm really fascinated by some of your work. Um, I just wondered uh, what drew you to working in neuroscience as a, a, a career? You know, what? how did you get into it? Yes, I was studying uh, biology and was thinking how to come into these behavioural neuroscience and at that time when I studied it was lots of uh, genetics and was difficult to get jobs so I started to study medicine and I uh, did all my clinical practice to be a specialized neurologist and in parallel I was able to do research for all the time even during studying and yes, and I met, for instance, I was 10 years in the group of Niels Bierbaumer in Tübingen, who is very interdisciplinary. Uh, his high interest in, for instance, extraordinary people, expertise and arts. And he, uh, I was a functional imaging imager at that time. And so I was a member of the medical faculty and he was a psychologist and uh, we were doing some studies on autistic savants or mnemonists or musicians, singers with the opera house in Stuttgart. And uh, yes, I was always very interested in how these people achieve these extraordinary capacities and which brain areas are predominantly involved in doing that. And so we uh, were searching on common issues uh, or processes of the brain happening uh, during these creative processes or these artistic processes and how these people are characterized by doing what they are doing so perfectly. And so we uh, had the chance to, to start this work already yes, several years ago in the last millennium in Tübingen and I also had the chance to go on with this research over here in Graswald. Wow. Can you talk can you talk a little bit just to sort of I, I guess set up what we're gonna move into when we talk about writing. Can you would you mind talking a tiny bit about that work you did early on with uh savants, presumably people who are show a particular um skill or aptitude for for visual was it visual arts or was it musical ones as well or so with artistic savants this was predominantly a work of uh, uh, Nicola Neumann who is now in my team uh, who uh, worked there on the brain computer interface uh, work with Niels and then switched to these special uh, people who are autistic but have these insular uh, intelligence and the problem of course is if you investigate these people you it's very difficult to make group analysis because everybody has a very specialized knowledge about uh, knowing the plans of all uh, airplanes in the world or uh, developing special interest in visual spatial recognition so you know 
of course, you know, some uh, very famous people who have very special knowledge on these. And of course, they were not, there's not as much um, overlap in these neural capacities as you can find in experts in uh, non-pathologic uh, range as usually the people are who work as artists or a singer or as instrumentalists or as writers. So uh, this is, of course, a completely different uh, topic, these people than the uh, healthy people who are working as artists and have social interaction in a normal range like we do have. So I'm really, really fascinated by your work into your studies of the brains of creative writers. I've, I've had sort of various discussions, and I'm particularly interested because, like, as somebody who has written all his life, um, you know, you uh, and uh, you know, you a lot of people talk to me <laughs> as if writers have a special type of brain, or you're born with a special type of brain. Um, the idea that uh, as writers we're sort of um, uh, more likely to be kind of daydreamers, uh, maybe more prone to some kind of um, mental health challenges uh, like depression or anxiety or some kind of, um, uh, you know, you know, like schizophrenia even or something like that. And I was just so I'm really interested that it's something that somebody else is interested in. And now we're in a position of actually being able to observe um the brain. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came to be specifically focusing on writers and the research you've done um, on what happens when somebody's writing. Yes. So uh, as always in life, it's a basic interest and an interaction with people and the possibility to do something uh, like research in uh, creative verbal intelligence. So we um, have a son of the chief neurologist here in Greifswald who is uh, doing his PhD at one of the two universities who teach creative writing for German language and this is only Leipzig and Hildesheim and this is about five to six hours by train from here so it's not around the corner. And there is a, in Germany, quite famous author called Hans-Josef Orteil, who is the founding director of this institute. And he gave us the opportunity to discuss operationalization of this study together with creative writers who are also famous authors, and also to recruit um, very promising students for this study who really scored very high in verbal creativity scores or really were very good in um, writing texts in the text continuation task, which we uh, um, also scored, or they had also high experience in creative writing, although they were not older than our medical students or our students here from our own university because we always like to compare expert groups with um, other groups and of course they have to be matched quite well. So can I just check for a second you said that they had uh, verbal continuation tasks and create and creativity tasks so are those ones that you 
came up with to get a sense of who was particularly creative? Of course, it's always good to uh, to use tasks or tests which are common in verbal creativity research. So this is the first uh, thing to do when you try to make an international study that you really build up on this model, which is uh, which has uh, stand the time on <laughs> verbal creativity and also use uh, standardized tests which are. Uh, used by others, so you can compare the results with them. And uh, of course, you always have to, uh, this verbal creativity is of course very specific for the language you're writing in. And so you need a test and uh, which is uh, specific for the language. And the best would be, which is also internationally used, but uh, usually with this type of research, you have a specific test in, for Germany, for verbal creativity. You um, can always score the texts which are written, so, so you make some kind of test, and you send the text to professors who are or authors who are experienced, and they rate the text with certain ratings. This is a good thing, which is, of course, internationally the same. And the other thing is that you also score the experience, the years and the hours per week they spend with creative writing and uh, how active they are on their blog or whatever they write. So all these different aspects go into the scores, which are then compared with their brain image during uh, their performance in the scanner. Wow. Okay. And can you talk about the actual, what you did when you had these two groups, um, what you were then um, looking for and what you did with them? Yeah, the problem is that uh, you probably know MRI scanners and the first instruction you get is... Uh, don't move and <laughs> close your eyes. So you just yeah, switch on your default mode network or your reset button on the brain and don't do anything or think about what you want to do tomorrow. So uh, can I just check for people who are listening? The default mode network is the sort of part of the brain that is our sort of habitual uh, sort of state of thinking is that right yes that it's something which enables you to switch very fast to a task driven uh, uh, demand from outer <laughs> environment and which is something you have during rest and uh, usually now you have to act in the scanner and these acting brings a lot of problems because the scanner is noisy the scanner is narrow and the people should not move and so, <laughs> yeah, it's not the normal way that I would sit down to write a, a, a novel, I'll admit. <laughs> yes, that is also a big critic with his studies, with imagings that people have to lie down. But we try to operationalize that in a very simple way. So we asked the volunteers to lay down, don't move, and made that very comfortable. And then we had a 
a uh, normal paper with a desk on them so they could see the paper with a double mirror so they could control for what they're writing because you can't put a laptop or anything into the scanner because of the high magnetization and uh, then we yes and they just tried to feel comfortable and try to really get in a mood where they could also uh, write creatively which was of course scored afterwards how comfortable how concentrated and how uh, good they could uh, relax in the scanner to really be creative but of course that is always a problem and you have to imagine that the scanner has it's like making a film of your brain and the scanner has a temporary resolution of two seconds now of course we are faster but when we did the study it was two seconds and so every picture of this movie is with a two-second image, which also does not really um, is not really suited for very fast brain processes. You just see an image of the whole process, but not an image what happens during the process. Um, so that is also a very special demand on the task you're doing because you need some time to get creative in the scanner or to, to feel, to get a feeling for the text. And then you really want to have the, the, the image of the brain being creative, which is just some certain moments during the creative writing process. So that took us some time and is of course, yes, under debate how to optimize these processes. And can you talk about, um, well, yeah, can you find about the, the, what were the differences that you found uh, what, for first of all, what did you find? What what ha, what ha, what was happening when people were being creative when they were writing, and um and and was there a difference between the two, the between these 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 groups that you had? Yes, so we were able, although of, although was the technical restrictions, we were able to see the, a whole network of uh, brain activity during these writing process and we were uh, performing a modular concept of the brain that we just subtracted uh, copying or just uh, thinking brainstorming from the writing process from the creative writing process so we uh, were focusing on the creative process and doing that, we identified several areas of the brain, which are, of course, always a nomenclature, which is not so easy for anybody who is not into brain research. <laughs> but um, yes, the main thing is that the less creative students, so the students from other parts who had just half an hour of writing during week and just for three years trying to write something a little bit at home, something like a diary or something like that. These students focused their activity during the creative process in visual or partial areas. So they had some visual images they were uh, trying to write down, whereas the experts who were used to to these tasks to, to write a story in a different style, for instance, were activating the prefrontal areas together with the language areas and automatization structures of the basal ganglia. 
which indicate very cognitive precise processes, a very precise a process of the left hemisphere, which is dominant for the language processing, and also a lot of automatization processes uh, indicated by these cognitive parts of the basal ganglia. So they focus more on language, cognitive process, and spend less time with some imagery processes, uh, which are characteristic for the amateurs. That's 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 fun. That's fascinating to me because I I, I suppose if you had just asked me as a as a writer and and this is why science is important right this is one of the one of the really important things it does is test common sense hypotheses against the reality so you don't just go with your gut because my i guess my my assumption if you'd asked me to predict which of those two if you gave me the two results and said which of these do you think is the amateurs and which do you think are the uh, the experienced writers I would imagine in my head that the amateurs would be more focused on language because it, almost as if the te text was in the way and they were sort of preoccupied with the the medium, the format in which they were writing and the professional writers or the writers who were doing it regularly and had some experience built up. Um, I would imagine they would be the ones you know, their imaginations would be set free and it would be activating these uh, sort of networks to do with imagery. But you're saying that it's the other way around and that some bits, you said the basal ganglia to do with automization processes. So that some of this is habitual for them now. It's then, it's sort of, uh, some of those processes have been sort of, um, I suppose, delegated to parts of the brain, uh, almost like subroutines uh, that are just running. Is that is that correct? Yes, yes, and that's if you usually you think creativity is something of the right hemisphere, something with imagination. And exactly. These, yeah. And and what we always see is it's the other way around. Is professionalism is left hemispheric professional uh, processing, and it's just more the routine. And this points to ideas on which are of course important uh, for uh, training creativity that that it is a lot of experience driven and a lot of training driven a lot of strategy work and retrieval of memory how did you do that last time and how you interact with um, language processes which are not driven only by the broca center but by more um, yes, by, by more cognitive uh, enrichment of the language, for instance. So it's, it's and th this is very interesting because it is um, seen in other expertise studies too, that you really focus on the areas you really need for the process, which are somehow boring. Which <laughs> 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 processes and the planning and the, and the automatization, but these seems to be very specific, at least for our, our uh, paradigm we used here for being a professional uh, artist, that you really uh, focus on these on these processes and you don't need so much uh, processes, at least demand on, on other things, but you really focus on the execution. So that, I mean, because that's fascinating because that in many ways kind of goes against how uh, the ways in which creative writing sometimes even taught some of the assumptions in creative writing pedagogy um, that we have where 
the idea is that you're making yourself more and more, uh, you know, imaginative when actually and also creative writing is so often taught as this kind of inherited uh uh i guess like static talent that you either have or you don't from birth and you're saying that it is a part of the brain that these pathways i mean okay so i guess my question to you is i know this is hypothetical but coming to some conclusions from this this study and what you've learned um if if you were having to say you get got put in front of a class of creative writers for one day to do maybe to do with a scheduling mix up or something and you had to um give them some advice based on what you've observed and what you think would help what would be your advice based on this um what can writers do to um make the most or to optimize their brains for creative writing so my idea, but this is not, of course, our research is not enough for that. And we need, of course, longitudinal uh, research because usually you don't know what is the hen and the egg. We also made uh, structural investigations on the two groups or looked what they did in the breaks between the creative processes and these things. But these were all cross-sectional studies and there is just one study by uh, Gottfried Schlag for uh, violin teaching in children where they did a longitudinal um, investigation how brain structure is changed by training with the violin or with the piano. But usually all these uh, comparisons we do are uh, experts against non-experts. And so we don't know what the hen and what the egg are. These people mm. who have these changes of functional representation who also show differences in the structure of the brain in the same areas, also the prefrontal lobe and language areas, um, uh, so very cognitive planning areas. Are these the people who go to creative writing because they are special? Or uh, is creative writing training 20 hours a week for 12 years, <laughs> like in our experts, yes, making these changes in your brain in very early uh, adulthood. So this is a very fascinating thing. Of, But our first results confirm other work of, for instance, Runko, uh, who also 2004 said that uh, there is a big possibility to train creative processes by using strategies and improve ways of processing. So these would uh, give hope to all the people who are <laughs> not creative by birth, but just think it's fascinating to be in the field and have a high motivation to participate that uh, they can shape their brain and um, they, if they interact with these processes that they might uh they they will be more creative but uh, they might also yes uh, also do uh, switch to these very specific changes in brain function so i see so so at the moment like you're saying we and of course you 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 were very right to to sort of hint at the fact that uh, of course um it would be nice to think that um doing you know doing a certain regime of training certain amount of creative uh, writing work would definitely result in um 
uh, one's brain sort of in that kind of uh, neurogenesis, the brain brain changing to more resemble the the shape of an expert creative writer. Um, And uh, but you're saying that it it's possible, but it may also be that the kind of people who go into creative writing that you're studying um, are the kind of people with brains that work in a way that predisposes them to think creatively and verbal in kind of verbal verbal creativity yes we know that all because we are always get motivation and feedback positive feedback if we are good in something at early childhood so we go into that field and uh, and then we spend a lot of time and that again changes our brain so all these factors are interacting a lot in everyday's life so um what what next for you like in in terms of um where you think the next sort of uh areas that need to be researched in this what do you think are the next big questions in researching how sort of verbal creativity and writing um operates are so of course we would like to go into these hen egg problem and see uh, do longitudinal studies on creative processes already in scholars so we are now writing an application with a group in st petersburg in russia to uh, investigate s- school systems with respect to mathematical intelligence so these um, processes which are scored by intelligence or creative processes and impact of school system scholars stress during school or uh, hormonal uh, influence you have during adolescence to see what how the brain is developing how creative processes are have an impact by different aspects but this is a thing which are going predominantly with the neuropedagogic pedagogic uh, scientists mm. so uh, um, which needs long-term research so it needs a lot of funding money we apply to get that but a more uh, concrete or a more more easy part would be just to make better paradigms or use faster imaging to get um, yes better insight to a real through the real creative processes and there are two methodological things you can do the one thing is uh, go away from the real life process we do, did and go away from the real creative writing process into more uh, non-real life things like uh, some uh, verbal creativity questions like that where you have to uh, interact with words in a verbally creative uh, way that was that's what others do that's the easy part and the other thing is try to get these real world creative process what the uh, or try to modify your experiment uh, in that way that you really can capture a picture of these real creative process and get more insight on the different aspects or the different um, variables which are uh, interacting during this process. That is a thing what we can do with cross-sectional uh, analysis and research where we also apply for. 
that I I want to I I I guess like the a, a question that I want to ask just for um I I'm going to say for the writers listening but um it it's certainly also for selfish reasons as a writer myself and as someone who is constantly interested in uh optimizing my own neurological processes but also by someone who has been I'm you know I'm someone who's been let down by his brain a lot you know I have a um a generalized anxiety disorder I have panic attacks you know I as far as I'm concerned my brain often betrays me in some fundamental ways um as well as helping me out um it you you said that it's unclear in some of these creative writing processes uh how much of them are to do with nature and how much of them are to do with nurture, how many are kind of like endemic versus um, entrained by uh, things that we do. But in a general sense, uh, and I'm saying this as a complete sort of uh, layman in neuroscience, is it possible for us to um, change the shape and the operation of our brains through uh training and in general um is that so if and if it is possible is that something that you know you're suggesting that you you're going to be doing longitudinal studies that will be looking at children and following them you know through adolescence into adulthood um is it the kind of thing that if you haven't started it as a child you know those things are set in stone so to speak you know uh, are, are my experiences that I've had as a teenager um, more or less uh, set the destiny of my brain? Or are there things that I can do now that can retrain it in some way? Yeah, these are wonderful questions and we really would like to help to get answers of that. And everybody has his own experience in that. Yeah. So we all need different uh, conditions to be creative or somebody needs like Thomas Mann to be at the same time at the in the office and ride for the same hours and then he has to have a break and the other one needs 10 kilometers uh, run every morning and we all struggle with our with with optimizing our strategy to be most creative and uh, decrease our fear which uh, is, of course, hampering creative process because we don't have to be so much self-destructive. But it's a very, very complicated uh, process, which is also quite different in different people. So uh, we are at the start of... uh, know of of investigating these things and this is of course a a lot of things can just be investigated by just behavioral studies you don't need the imaging part and that the imaging part is what i do is just the to get some idea what is going on in different regions of the brain where the phrenologists like me are seeing some interactions of other investigations. But of course, we all know it's an interaction of these uh, phrenologic areas. And maybe the answer of that is the, the interaction and the temporal process between the brain areas, which needs um, a certain relaxation situation or whatever. So these things are just at the beginning. And of course, as a uh, behavioral 
scientists, I think everything or a lot of things can be trained and there's a lot of possibility in the human brain to modify the brain. So uh, I would always try to train. Okay, that's well, that's a really good um, sort of a positive and hopeful um, note to end on. I'm really excited to hear what you find. Yeah, thank you, Tim Clare, for this very nice interview. I really appreciated it and it was very nice to talk with you. Yeah, thank you very much. And everybody else listening, uh, I hope that's been fun for you and have a very good writing week.